At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. When you're in a relationship with someone, and I mean like a deep abiding relationship where you've known each other for a long time, and there's something about a kiss that conveys a warmth and intimacy, certainly. But you know what's even better than that? A hug. As a matter of fact, my wife, though she does like to kiss, don't get me wrong, she loves a good hug. She loves that assurance. I think we all do. My grandkids love it. I long to give them. I pride myself on being a hug specialist. There's nothing like it. But I was reading the other day in all of the research that I do, and something really caught my eye about a case that's finally come to a conclusion. And the headline is what got me. It did involve a parent and a child. But within this headline, the term squeezed to death like a python caught my eye. Curiosity got the best of me. I had to read on. And this case is something that I think is kind of an insight into maybe a familial environment, into a world that you would not otherwise see. But unfortunately, as the world is nowadays, people's family life plays out in the news, and it certainly has in this case. Today, we're going to talk about a homicide where the daughter actually admitted that she squeezed her mother to death like a python. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Dave, I'm not soliciting you for a hug. Considering where this topic is going, I'm kind of relieved. It puts a whole new light. My wife always, these cases that I cover on television and stuff that, of course, that we do on Body Bags, Kim will come to me every now and then and she'll say, I can't get that out of my brain because I run everything past her. You know, we're a team on everything that we do. And, you know, you run these cases by her. And, and so anytime something happens like this, it really sticks with you. And you, you begin to think about that connotation, don't you? You have this warm family environment. And I've heard people say, well, we're not huggers in this family, or I'm not a hugger. And many times I don't want people putting their hands on me. But when it comes to those that I love and those that I want to express my love to, I'd have to say that I'm a hugger. But in this case, oh, my Lord, how do you generate enough power in order to facilitate the death of your mother? Never have I heard a term like a python used with regard to a loved one or even a friend. Usually it's a bear hug. When you give each other a bear hug, the big squeeze, a big old bear of a hug, python just means death. It means I'm going to hug and squeeze you to death, which when you talk about a hug, and we all do, I, we're huggers, I'm a hugger, but at no point in time have I ever hugged anybody hard enough that I hurt my own ribs, which is exactly what happened here with Cassandra Dussault. I'm thinking Cassandra is 33 years old, and she actually calls 911, Joe, and says, I was in the kitchen, and I heard a thud. I went in another room, and there's my mom laying on the floor. 
unconscious. Come help me. To most of us, that wouldn't even make sense. That call in and of itself makes no sense. There has to be more to it than that. Let me stop you right there because you're right. I think that probably the verbiage that she may not have followed up with was like, my mother began gasping for air. My mother was clutching her chest. She's 69 years old. The mother, Dorothy, is old. And so I think that maybe if the person that called in to 911, who is the daughter, if she had said something like, mom's clutching her chest, she's sort of breath, she was sitting at the dining room table and FUD. I'd gone into the kitchen to get a cool rag or something, but that's not the way it happened. I just heard a thud. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, really, that's your call. When rescue workers arrive on the scene, they're making mental notes that they can then share with other people involved, police, fire rescue, whoever else is going to be on the scene, correct? Yeah, they are. And again, I always like to acknowledge these people because most you just see an ambulance go flying by you in the road. You're trying to get over to give them the right of way and that sort of thing. There's a lot of stuff that they see that their worldview is completely different than that of a police officer that's showing up to a scene. Their goal, their mission is to rescue, is to save life, is to provide paramedical attention to an individual. That means outside of the clinic, you're going there in an acute situation most of the time. And so when you see them, when they're going into the scene, their assessment is more of a clinician where they're trying to determine not is this a homicide, is it a suicide, or that's secondary to what they're doing. They're thinking what can I do to keep this person from going to the light is essentially the way it comes out. And so, but there are some things that are just glaring when you hear, you know, the call. And I can tell you when the call came out from the dispatch, the dispatcher, and I've had to read hundreds of run sheets over the course of my career with a medical examiner in the corner. You subpoena those and you look for any bit of tidbits that you can, because we don't, And it applies in homicide cases, but you also look for them in in natural deaths as well. You just want to see what was the initial call, you know, what kind of kicked and set everything off. And the call would have come out. There's an unconscious person, probably. Reporter says that they heard a noise in the room. So EMTs, they don't know what they're walking into when they arrive there. The operator might still be on the phone with the caller, but they don't know what they're going to walk into at any time. It's arguably one of the most people talk about how dangerous police jobs are. It is right up there with one of the most dangerous things any occupation, any person can participate in. And they walk into the total unknown. And in this particular case, they did. Not only was it unknown, I think there was deception involved and that makes it, that even kicks it up a notch. It's not like somebody says, I had a hammer and I beat somebody to death. When there's deception going on and they're saying something to give you an idea that something else occurred than what you're seeing, that's a problem. So you would think if the call is, I heard a thud, went up there and she was unconscious. Now, when the medics get their no pulse, what does no pulse mean with an unconscious person on the ground? Does that mean the heart's not beating? Does that mean this person is not breathing at all, that nothing's going on, they're basically dead and you have to revive them? Is that what no pulse means? They're going to go through a code with this individual. And a code means that if you're ever in a hospital, I'll put it to you this way, if you're ever in a hospital and you'll hear them call codes, and traditionally code that you hear them when somebody's in cardiac arrest, is generally a code blue. And when you have a code blue, that means that an individual on the floor is in cardiac arrest. On a truck, 
when they roll out, they arrive there and they note that the person, their absent respiration, they can't pick up a detectable heartbeat. Person's still warm to the touch. Their pupils might be fixed and dilated. You don't know what the level of brain activity is at that moment. It might be nil. You're not really sure. They're still very warm to the touch. You know that there's life there. And so this idea of kind of drawing them back. So what are they going to do? Well, at that moment in time, they're going to walk in. They're going to have their crash bag with them, which is it's going to have a defibrillator in there. They're going to have a round of drugs that they can push like epinephrine, where they're going to go directly into the heart and try to restart things. They'll, they'll do compressions. That's not that thing straight to the heart isn't just a movie thing. That's real. They will try to get in. I don't want to say straight into the heart because they used to do it straight into the heart. Now I think they find a vessel where they go into the neck, but they'll have their crash bag with them, which will have a defibrillator on it. It'll have a little EKG screen on it where they're going to hook up leads on the individual. They'll have these leads all over them. It'll have defibrillator paddles, which you've seen in the, in the movies. And then they'll have a group of drugs, these stimulants that they're going to inject into the body to try to get this individual to respond, to try to wake them up, or at least to try to get their heart beating again. Because what you don't want happen is that they're going to go into a state of anoxia, what's referred to as anoxia, which means that if the heart's not beating, that's your plumbing, all right? And your lungs aren't functioning, that's your oxygen uptake, that blood is not being pushed to the brain. And if the brain dies, if it goes into the state of anoxia, which means it's being deprived of oxygen, if you lose the brain, all hope is lost at that point in time. So, But they have to get that heart restarted. And so that's what they're doing. They're working them. And they try to get them out of the house. And this plays into an investigation. They're trying to get them out of the house per stretcher, get them into the back of that truck, and they're going to run lights and sirens all the way to the hospital. There will be at least one EMT in the back of that truck that is doing chest compressions, perhaps working an Ambu bag, which is the bag that they have over their face where they're squeezing it, trying to force oxygen into the body until they can get them into the emergency room. And it's at that point in time that an ER physician will take over. You're going to have highly trained nurses and technicians that are in there, and they're going to be working a code. There's a code that is working as it rolls through the door. I used to work as an ER tech many years ago. It's one of these things that's like so striking, you know, when a person comes through the door, they're on a stretcher. In the old days, you would see somebody on top of the gurney, on top of the person doing chest compressions. And that used to really happen. They'll roll them into a crash room, which is a little bit bigger than a regular treatment room because they have all kinds of equipment in there. And they're just trying to save that life, sustain them for a moment. But back at the scene, here's the thing. You've had this, it's almost like this tornado that has erupted in an otherwise ordered environment. And now you're absent the person that dwelled in the home. You've got the other person that was with them that's there perhaps alone. Who knows? Did she go to the hospital with them? Did the police stand by at the, at the scene to take notes? What happened in that moment, Tom, had anything at that scene been rearranged between the time that the person left the house, they got to the hospital, and you've got an individual back at home that has an opportunity to pick up furniture, pick up any evidence, to make things appear as if nothing else happened.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Years ago, when I got out of my field full-time, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had sleep disorder. I had depression. And for me, I had to turn to someone to talk to, somebody that could aid me along the path to healing, to restore me to that person that maybe I was at one point in time, to make me better for not just myself, but my family. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do this anytime that you like. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com bags today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash bags. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know that there is a sadder time in the life of a family than when you have to sit out there in that waiting room and you've got a loved one that is on a ventilator. So many times I've gone to hospitals to interview families over the years to talk to them, to try to understand because the family has those nuggets of truth, those things that kind of populate the story of what brought an individual to the position that they're in. In this particular case, Dave, this case is not one of these cases where we go immediately out to the scene as a death investigator and you work the scene. This actually requires something called a retro scene visit. And I can talk to you about that. But first off, you got to have a death before the medical examiner of the coroner gets involved. And there wasn't a death immediately in this case. I'm so glad you brought that up now because I was going back to where we were talking about the call that 911 gets when they activate. And the activation is the witness says she was in a different room, heard a thud, went in and found her mother unconscious next to the bed. Now, I've read a report that said she was on the bed, but two of the three police reports said next to the bed on the floor. But irregardless of where she was actually found, that was what the medical people arrived on scene knowing. That's what the police knew when they arrived on the scene. Now, as the medics have taken Dorothy Dusold, 69 years old, unconscious, they you know, wheeled her out and she's on her way to the hospital. Her daughter, Cassandra Dussold, who was 33 at the time, is standing there and now she's talking to police because they're saying, what happened? Her story of, I heard a thud and went in and found my mother lying unconscious, that story ended fairly quickly. As a matter of fact, before Cassandra left to go to the hospital to check on her mother, police were talking to her at the house and the story changed. She was wearing a sweater, a sweatshirt rather, and... As she was giving a description of what took place, she was describing an attack. At first, she said that her mother came at her with claws out. Now, to you or me, that means it does sound to me like a female attack, girl on girl, fingernails kind of thing, claws out. That was the original description from Cassandra Dussold saying her mother was attacking her with claws out. But then Cassandra said that she then 
ended up getting her mother in a chokehold. She said she had to get her in a headlock and she squeezed like a python. She squeezed so hard that she hurt her own ribs. That's what this daughter said. She squeezed her mother so hard that she squeezed the life out of her. Now, when the medics arrived, they described a scene of injuries that I can't figure out. And that's why I was glad that you were talking about how this all breaks down for police and medics and how they all have to figure out what went on. Because what kind of injuries would one achieve or have based on being squeezed like this in this python death grip around the neck? Well, let's back up. First off, I don't understand. This suspect has a proclivity for going back to animal references. She talks about pythons and she talks about having claws out, claws deployed, this kind of animalistic imagery that's being painted here. Why does she slip back to that? We can go down this road and talk about primal things and all that. But I've heard people say they fought like a wild animal. I've heard people say that, but this is kind of specific stuff when you think about it. So you haven't heard that as a descriptor before? She came in with the claws out? I've heard of it from people describing an altercation that they had. And it's generally metaphorical, where they'll say they came at me with their claws out, meaning that they were going to really do damage. And again, do damage. What kind of imagery are you attempting to create with law enforcement? Well, what you're saying by that, you're actually stating claws out implies that she's going to rip me to shreds, that she's going to do harm to me. And all the while, you might have a suspect that is trying to justify their actions. Now, hey, listen, at this point in time, you don't know. Maybe there's familial violence that goes on in this house. Maybe this daughter has been subjected to familial violence. Something that has gone on in that home that she's borne witness to, who knows? And so she's got this kind of indwelling fear within her. It doesn't mean that it's some kind of psychopathy necessarily is some kind of mental defect or disease that she's born witness to it. Who knows at this point? And so the police are working this and they're trying to understand. First off, anytime a suspect changes a story with the cops, the human part within an investigator's brain, and aside from being an investigator, you're going to say, okay, you're lying to me now. I'm not going to believe anything else you have to say. This is strike one. Isn't that obvious, though? And everything we know, we know about police and investigations whenever. Why did the story change? Because either the first story you told me is a lie or the second story you're telling me is a lie. They're not going to live at the same taste, place and time. They are separate. And now you're giving me a choice to decide which one I'm going to go with. Yeah, you're right. And for some reason, I, I guess that may, perhaps a suspect thought that I'm going to be able to justify what happened. First off, you know, I'm going to try to attribute this to something other than what it turned out being some kind of natural disease. Look, if you're a cop and you're out there, you don't know what her medical history is at the time. Now, that's a question you'll ask. That's a question that EMTs would say. They'd look at the daughter. I've seen them doing this while they're working a case feverishly. They'll look up, is your mother on any medication? Has she ever had a heart attack? And they're asking these questions. They're being thrown out. And the, the family member's like, uh, no, uh, well, let me go in the medicine cabinet and get what they have, you know, and that sort of thing. You'll have that happen. You know, and it does happen. And then the cops come in behind once everything is kind of settled down and say, what kind of medical history did your mother have? Did she fall down a lot? Because one of the things I found out about this case is that after they began to examine the mother, who, by the way, like I said, did in fact survive, but only for hours, I guess. It turned out maybe a couple of days. She's on ICU 
they begin to see that the mother has got bilateral, which means side by side, black eyes, Dave. What does that mean? Is that going to happen during the choking or the squeezing? I think that it could. You could have some hemorrhagic changes where the face begins to swell. Generally, you're going to see petechiae, which are tiny little hemorrhages. Most of the time, though, when you see an individual with true bilateral black eyes, that means that there's a skull fracture because you're talking about the eyes swelling as a result of the floor of the skull literally being cracked. It's bleeding behind the eyes. The eyes swell up. If you've ever been around somebody that's had plastic surgery done to their nose to alter the nose in any way, it's not as uh, gentle as it sounds when people say plastic surgery. There's bone being broken. There's bone being fractured and cracked and remodeled and all those sorts of things. Well, what happens with that? Well, you get swollen eyes and you got hemorrhagic changes that are behind there. It's just the way the body reacts. So I find that statement that they made about bilateral bruises beneath the eyes kind of interesting. You mentioned skull fracture. In this case, too, they also found blood behind her head and coming out of her ears. One ear in particular, their right ear, would that also run counter or would that be opposed to what you're describing or would that actually be something else to, to expect if somebody has hurt their head? Yeah, it could be directly related to an impact injury. And I'm curious about this because the skin doesn't just spontaneously crack open interrupt. You have to have some kind of impact trauma, whether you're talking about a gunshot wound, a fall where they actually make a contact with a floor like a thud, or where they're struck with an object. So I find it curious that she's got blood in the back of her head. She's got blood that's emanating from her ear. There have been cases where people will have overly congested heads as a result of an asphyxial event where there's a bit of blood that seeps out of the ear, but those cases are so few and far between and extraordinary that you wouldn't see it. So I'm thinking there's some kind of skull trauma going on, particularly when you couple that with the swelling in the eyes, the blackening of the eyes, this sort of thing. But what's interesting is that the daughter is stating that she actually got the mom in a chokehold. And you really have to examine that and think about the position that an individual is in when they did that. And they're being very nonspecific about this. Now, if they, a traditional chokehold, when you think about it, first off, cops can't do them anymore. They used to be able to do them. You'll see them in like wrestling and all these sorts of things. You have what's referred to, and if everybody at home will kind of envision this, you have what used to be referred to as an arm bar. You take and place your forearm beneath the chin and you pull back with one arm and you compress the trachea externally. Okay, that's an arm bar. Then you have a traditional choke hold, which means you get the individual in the crook of your arm. If you have the arm bent at the elbow and then almost like a nutcracker, you put leverage on that arm with your other arm and you begin to squeeze down. Is that like the sleeper hold that we used to hear about? It is like the sleeper hold and also in combatives training where you have the military that where this is lethal training that they're doing. And this is kind of a jujitsu thing as well, where they will choke an individual out with a chokehold. And they'll also here's an, another interesting part where they will wrap their or intertwine their legs with the individual to, first off, prevent them from moving. And secondly, they'll begin to squeeze with the lower body as well. And you get the person into a state of compliance at that point in time. The problem is, is that 
most people that are doing this, you don't have the individual hooked up to a machine that's going to say, okay, well, you're at a critical point right here and you're about to kill the person. If anger is high, or as they used to say, their blood is up and you're squeezing and there's anger involved, you're not going to know where that line of demarcation is, where you've gotten into the lethal range at that point in time. Now, the one thing that we did see, police said that she was wearing a sweatshirt and was the, Cassandra, the daughter, was giving the description of what happened when she said she came with claws out and everything else. And then she took her shirt off. She took the long sleeve sweatshirt off and revealed that Cassandra, who had her mother in the chokehold, squeezing like a python, that she had scratch marks on her arm. Cassandra, the daughter, as if the mother was trying to pull the arm away from her neck, as if she was trying to get out of the chokehold. And those marks were left on Cassandra Dussault's arm. And you know, Dave, that's one of the most important things. If you pay attention as an investigator to all that remains and all that is left behind, either the body of the victim, or in this case, the body of the perpetrator, will tell you exactly what happened. you're a police officer and you have this individual that is trying to convince you that her most current story, and I'm referring to Cassandra Dusso, her most current story that she's given you is the gospel truth. It's really hard to know which way to go with it. It's really hard to kind of suss this out, as they say, because you want, you do want to know the facts because sometimes people die violently as a result of them attacking another person. As a police officer, you can't discount that because that's an element of the law that's referred to as self-defense. But when you have a subject that is changing stories back and forth, and in addition to that, they have made an effort to mask their deeds by putting on clothing to cover themselves up, you're into a completely different bit of territory at that point in time. Now we know based on what uh, Cassandra Dussault has told us, that she squeezed her mother in a chokehold like a python. She squeezed her hard enough that she felt her own ribs squeeze. She hurt her own ribs while squeezing the life out of her mother. We know that her mother was taken to the hospital and never regained consciousness. She had little to no brain function. She eventually was taken off of life support and passed. We know that the story that was told, I heard a thump and found my mother unconscious. And then she later tells the police, well, I was the thump. And by the way, here are the scratches on my arm that I tried to hide from you. As the police are looking into this and the defense is getting their own statement together, claiming that there was some mental health issues, that did come out that there were some mental health issues at play here, but they didn't have anything to do with right or wrong. That And they used this, and I think I asked you this before we started today, just because I was kind of curious. I mean, you're a medical guy. When you go and you see somebody, if they're trying to cover up a wound, they're trying to cover up something that they know is not supposed to be there. For instance, scratches on your arm. If there's just a thud and you find your mother unconscious, you wouldn't have scratches on your arm. So you have to cover that up to fit your story. Immediately coming up with a lie, doesn't that mean you know the difference between right and wrong? Yeah, and not just that, but you're trying to survive at that point in time. I often think about this because, you know, I cover a lot of these trials when I appear on these various television networks and whatnot. And and it always amazes me. I sit there and I'll listen to 
the forensic psychologist that I'll be on the air with, and God bless them, their world is very nuanced compared to the world that I live in. <laughs> You're dealing with numbers and kind of physical findings on things. What I will say is that when you have an individual that is making an attempt to cover their tracks and to put distance, and I, I literally mean this in a physical sense, put distance between themselves and the attack, you've got this awareness, I think. And what I do know and what I learned, I, I even learned this at a graduate level in my forensic science studies. When you study the idea of constitutional law and these sorts of things, they have these two terms that they use, these Latin terms, and it's actus re, and that's the guilty act. And that means that you've committed an act that flies in the face of the law, like a homicide, all right? Then they have menace re, which means guilty mind. If you are in possession of menace re per an evaluation, then that means that you're aware of what's going on. It's not like they come across and they find you dancing around in the front yard with an imaginary butterfly net attempting to catch invisible butterflies, all right? You're not necessarily oriented to time and space at that moment in time. You're talking about a person that, yeah, I mean, I'm sure she's got trauma, she's got mental health issues in the past, but that doesn't necessarily mean at that moment in time that she was not aware that what she was doing was wrong. I mean, it was wrong. Maybe she did fly into a rage in order to perpetrate this. Not a lot of planning went into this. I will say that. This is something I think that was rather an impulsive event. But I, I can tell you this, the mother, we were kind of dancing around the dates a little bit. She was there for technically two days, but they're saying she actually died after three. So she rolls in the hospital on, at night in the evening. They had been eating supper at that point in time. She survived for three days. That's the other kind of cruel level to this, I think. The family and friends would have gathered at the hospital. And she had a lot of friends. She's a very successful business person, highly educated. Her husband was a local politician. Yeah, city council guy. Yeah. But you know, the, the doctors would have come out and told them, listen, we've done everything that we possibly could do, but here's kind of the beneath the layers that they would have gone into with the family at that point in time. As a result of this pressure being placed on this woman's throat, and you've got not just the airway, which if people will feel the cartilaginous area in their neck, the trachea, but just to either side of it, the two major vessels there that are the carotids, and then you also have the jugular veins that are there as well. Those are outgoing and incoming. So you've got the arteries, the carotids that supply the oxygenated blood to the brain, and then it's going to be brought back through the venous system. All of that was compromised, Dave. And it was compromised to the point where that chokehold that she applied to her mother, and her mother was aware, Dave, that bad things were happening. And the reason she was aware of it it's evidenced on the perpetrator's body. Just imagine, I don't know how many people can actually identify with this. Maybe when you were a kid and you're tussling around, if there's something that is blocking your airway, you're going to fight like a fury in order to free yourself from that. And that that's essentially what this woman was doing. Those last moments of consciousness that she possessed. Now, they have listed her cause of death as anoxic encephalopathy, which means her brain was oxygen deprived. But when you look at a death certificate, there's like a, a primary cause of death. And that's also coupled along with cardiopulmonary arrest, which means she went into cardiac arrest as a result of oxygen not being supplied. Both these things are in concert with one another, because if you're impacting the brain 
particularly, you know, you think about the autonomic nervous system, that area within your brain that tells your heart to beat, tells you to breathe. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. That brain center is getting harmed as a result of oxygen deprivation. But from a broader sense, the direct cause of death, and this is kind of interesting, is actually listed as manual strangulation. And when we think about manual strangulation, we generally don't think about chokeholds. We think about throttling, where you grab the neck and you squeeze, or where you C-clamp the throat and you squeeze down on it. But most of the time you'll have with a C-clamp, if you'll just make your folks that are listening to me make their hand into this configuration of a C, one hand, and pretend that you're grabbing the center of your throat and you squeeze. Lots of times with that, you're going to see severe cartilaginous damage in that area. You'll actually fracture the cartilage many times with a C-clamp. But it's just an interesting term that the medical examiner used when they listed her cause of death as manual strangulation. Because why say manual strangulation as opposed to chokehold? Maybe those two things are interchangeable for this particular medical examiner. I have actually seen chokehold on a death certificate. But that leads us to something else. Did the investigators, did the police get it right? Did she actually tell them everything? Because was there evidence there that the medical examiner saw that would imply maybe this wasn't necessarily a chokehold where she's wrapping her mother up from the back? Maybe she came at her with both of those hands together, squeezed the life out of her with her hands wrapped around her neck. I don't know that anyone will ever know what actually happened in this particular case, but I can tell you this, this perpetrator, this young woman killed her mother. She killed her mother on the floor of their family home. And Cassandra Dussold has been convicted of manslaughter and will be away for at least 10 years. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.